This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Jake Shapiro, founder and CEO of Public Radio Exchange, an award-winning public media company with a mission to harness technology to bring significant stories to millions of people. PRX is an online platform and marketplace where listeners, producers, and stations come together to improve public radio and public media. More than 25 million Americans listen to public radio each week. And PRX is the community's largest distribution marketplace, offering tens of thousands of pieces for broadcast and digital use. Anyone can join, publish, license content, and earn royalties. Among its many honors, PRX has earned the 2011 Peabody Award for Excellence in Electronic Media for the Moth Radio Hour, the 2011 Webby Award winner for its iPad app regarding This American Life, And the exchange also won the 2010 Night News Challenge and the 2008 MacArthur Award for Creative and Effective Institutions. Jake is a graduate of Harvard University, a fellow of the Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and also an Ashoka Fellow. That's an experience we share. He's not only a social entrepreneur, but also a successful musician and composer, and he speaks Russian fluently. Jake, thank you so much for being with us today. It's really <laughs> yeah, been thanks a lot. Uh, I've been looking forward to a talk. I want to tell you, I'm a I'm a big consumer of public radio podcasts and and audio liter- literature, and I'm actually a regular listener to the Moth. So your work is really uh, relevant to my data stream in my life. Terrific. That's great. Before we get to the details of PRX, I, I'd like to ask if you could share the story of how you first became interested in public radio and public media and maybe focus on two experiences that I think are earlier in your career and perhaps shaped your work. One is the time that you spent in Russia. I understood you you were in Russia in the early 90s um, when it was in a state of turmoil and, you know, emerging as a real democracy. And uh, and then also your work on the on the program the connection. If you could uh, talk about those experiences and anything else that was really relevant to forming your interest in public media. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this interview. It was great to uh, meet you at an Ashoka event, um, and of course, would love the opportunity to talk more about what we're up to here and see how it connects to other social entrepreneurship that's out and about. Um, so a few things were sort of formative that, that in retrospect led to a lot of the insights and inspiration in my work in public media, but at the time just seemed like a kind of a zigzag adventure. Um, it, it's true, I lived in, in Moscow, I moved after college having studied Russian language and literature, moved to Russia um, right at the cusp. I was there first in 1990 um, when it was still the Soviet Union and then moved there in 92 and lived there in 93, 4, and 5 um, at a time when it was in true transformation and had landed there just at the time, actually, that uh, Yeltsin and the White House got in the standoff and the tanks were on the streets and martial law was declared. And I'd been a director, a program coordinator for a language and political studies program that I'd originally been a student on and went back to do some work helping students understand what was happening in Russian society, um, which was essentially a live laboratory for everything, all of the above. But my... um, 
my my nighttime job, which has always been the case, is playing in a band. So, you know, I'm a guitarist and a cellist, um, and I started a Russian-American rock band while I was in Moscow, which is a great way to get to meet people, um, speak Russian, and explore the exploding cultural scene, because there really hadn't been anything like that for decades. Um, And, you know, it was a fascinating time to be there. Um, I needed to get my bearings, and I actually came back initially um, in 95 um, to start a rock band, um, and, and it was in the dawning era of the internet, and, and much of that experience, starting a band and being an independent record label in the early days of digital music, um, where what I wanted to try to do, and was, I still feel this is a thread we continue, is to connect artists with audiences using the internet. And so back in 96, this band we started, Tutan Shu, T-W-O-T-O-N-S-H-O-E, like a big heavy shoe, um, this kind of funk, soul, pop, rock band, um, we had a fan over at the MIT Media Lab, um, and we set up our first website on their servers and started encoding our songs into MP3s, and this is 1996, um, self-distributing and trying to create an internet record label in the very early days. Um, and much of that experience um, over the coming years as we developed the band and toured and released albums um, has inspired uh, things that I still reflect on today. We had... Um, Kind of two two experiences there before I get to the public radio connection. One is um, in the heyday of the internet boom in 1999, there was a website called mp3.com, which at the time was seen as this great success of bottoms up artist creativity. You know, this was going to be the place that would break the first artist um, without major record label intervention, just directly to fans. Um, and they did an extraordinary thing, which is at the time when all these internet companies were having their public offerings um, and, you know, they were skyrocketing. Uh, mp3.com decided when they did their IPO to let the bands, the artists who had accounts at that point, buy in on the offering share price of the IPO, um, knowing, of course, that it was going to succeed. And so my band, my rock band, you know, gathered together the scraps and, you know, hundreds of dollars here and hundreds of dollars there. And a few thousand dollars were able to buy into this internet.com IPO which went through the roof. We sold the shares wow. and managed to buy buy the touring band van, you know, a bunch of gear, like paid for our next album. Um, and the guy, Rankle Robertson, who started mp3.com, you know, and every time I've seen him at a conference since, I've thanked him because it was such an extraordinary move and also something that, in a way, I think ties to the sort of crowdfunding moments that we're now in, but back then was just unheard of. Um, and then years later, one of our songs, a song called Medicine, uh, the MP3 of it, which we'd been aggressively distributing online um, forever, uh, ha- became an organic uh, hit on its own, just a viral hit in, of all places, South Korea. Wow. And uh, we started to hear from South Korean fans and didn't know it was up. This was literally like seven or eight years later, maybe 2005, um, and uh, got contacted by a record label in South Korea who said, your music is becoming popular and we'd like to license your catalog and release it in South Korea. And we said, sure, you know, we don't believe those things until the check hit, you know, clears the bank. But it actually did happen. They did it and, and invited us over to tour there. And we showed up and unbeknownst to us, we were, we were rock stars in South Korea. We sold out shows, lines around the block, billboards on the sidewalk. God, that's incredible. Uh, you know, <laughs> we were on national television playing our music. Uh, Korean bands are covering our songs and uploading their own versions to YouTube. Um, and, you know, for me... I mean, the band back in the U.S. is never a huge success, but, you know, it, it has this underlying theme, which has been one for my work at PRX and public media overall, um, ties somewhat to the long tail theory of Internet distribution, which is that uh, the sort of open Internet um, and digital media allows for niche 
content and audiences to connect in ways that traditional retail or other kinds of um, top-down businesses never really allowed. And, you know, for us, that that is, you know, clearly true that there was a hidden audience in South Korea for our music that we would never have connected with if not for that um, uh, internet distribution. And I, I like to tell budding uh, artists or entrepreneurs that there's a South Korea out there for everyone <laughs> um, if they can only connect with it. So that was the band. Now, when I needed to get a real day job, when the band was not fully paying the bills, um, I'd always been a listener to public radio um, here in Boston. And there was a show that I was particularly a fan of, which was The Connection with Christopher Lydon on WBUR. Um, and they had a, a rare opening for a producer job, and I auditioned for it and um, jumped in. This was back in the summer of 2000, and um, it was an extraordinary experience. And that really got me hooked, uh, both because producing that show, and this is one of those daily public affairs call-in talk shows, Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris is a true public intellectual and a, just an incredible enthusiast and, and wonderful to work with. Um, and it's sort of this graduate seminar on speed where you, you're interviewing fascinating people trying to find the best talkers on a topic and writing and researching about it um, all in a mad dash of adrenaline for live radio each day, two hours a day, two different topics, um, you know, wow. 10, hour, 10 hours a week. And, you know, so you dive all the way in and then dive all the way out to the next one. And it was it's addictive and, and exciting and in many ways participatory. And we would take phone calls from listeners. And Chris was terrific at actually teasing out the phone calls from listeners that would actually really add to the conversation, if not end up being more compelling than the guests themselves. Um, and we um, that show, I, I joined at a fateful moment because the show was um, being distributed by NPR nationally. And um, it was up for contract renegotiations with the stations and with the station that was carrying it. And at the time, the management of the station and the producers of the show got in a big fight about the ownership and the intellectual property and where it was going to go on the Internet versus broadcast distribution. Um, that fight ended up in a, in a t- turmoil where they actually um, ended up blowing apart and firing the hosts. And, and uh, the rest of our staff was in this moment of fate where we chose to actually quit and leave with the hosts of the show and the producer and start our own independent production company wow. in public radio. And so this was a trial by fire, too, both of the sort of the business side of how distribution and and uh, negotiations over such things were happening. And I you know, went from being a producer to really being the head of this business development um, startup around the, around the idea of starting a separate show. Um, we landed out um, doing our own uh, shows on the internet at the time. So back in 2000, 2001, this is before podcasting. We started doing monthly, hour-long MP3s that we would distribute, you know, to other stations to carry, and really tried to create our own enterprise um, with the idea that this was the connection in exile, essentially, <laughs> uh, or the, the disconnection or something. So we, we, you know, it was a, it was it was covered quite a lot in the Boston media at the time, and it was uh, it was traumatic in some ways, but also really for me, got me thinking in a whole new way about what the um, distribution and business layer of public media could or should be, uh, both negatively and positively. I mean, it really taught me a lot. Um, And it was right around then that uh, we were looking for a place to set up an office and kind uh, folks over at the Berkman Center, Charlie Nesson and Jonathan Zittrain, who had been guests on the show, um, said, hey, we've got a sort of a startup space, and Berkman is a very non- entrepreneurial nonprofit, and you guys are welcome to sort of set up shop. And so we went over there, and ultimately a year later, when the production company didn't succeed um, at that time, at least, um, I joined the Berkman Center on staff and became the associate director at the center. 
and the Berkman Center, and it's true today even more so than, than back then in 2001, uh, 2002, is really this fascinating think tank that looks at broad issues around not just law, but you know policy and culture and technology at the intersection of the internet and society. Fascinating scholars who are associated with it, but also a very um, sort of do uh, activist group where they actually would hire coders and build things, not just you know write about them. And I loved that. And and rate that summer of 2002 was when Creative Commons. Larry Lessig was out here, um, and Creative Commons as a concept was just getting started. Um, Aaron Schwartz, uh, famously who was 14 at the time, was involved in writing the metadata standards. And and this was a ripe moment. Um, right as the internet was sort of recovering, or not even recovering, but just you know in the decline after the dot-com explosion, uh, the bomb had happened, right. um, and it hadn't yet started back up again. Um, and so it was a it was an interesting vantage point. Um, that in 2002, for me, um, ended up being a ripe place for this idea of PRX, public radio exchange, and. Um, to segue quickly into that, and then I'll take a breath because I've been doing a kind of a run-on run version of this, but um, I, I, I met Jay Allison, who's a Pied Piper of public radio down in Woods Hole, tremendously talented, legendary independent producer, has done a lot of work, um, and then also the station resource group, Tom Thomas and Terry Clifford, who are, I think of them as the shadow government of public radio. They've been around since the beginning. They've done a ton of policy work, started organizations like NFCB and advised many stations and networks along the way. And they actually had the initial paper. They'd written up a grant proposal around this idea of let's create a internet exchange of programs that would connect independent producers and stations. And so they actually had that concept. Um, I, I heard of it at a conference, tried to link the Berkman Center up with it, and they said, you know what, instead you should apply to be our executive director. Um, and so that's actually how it first got started in 2002. And I jumped in and joined, um, left Berkman to do this startup, essentially. They had a little bit of startup money. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, the startup money was really only going to come from foundations. There, was, there wasn't a dot-com you know, investment moment. And uh, so Ford Foundation, MacArthur, and CPB, and NEA, and those folks were, were, took, a, took a risk and gave us some money to start building PRX. Well, that's that's terrific. I, actually, I have I had this whole list of questions, and you just <laughs> sort of slayed them all. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, but that's perfect, actually, because um, that was some of the ground that I really was curious about, and uh, particularly sort of how the idea had emerged. I think <clears throat> one of the things that we deal with is that a lot of people, you know, listen to public radio, but they don't have a, really any sense of how it's produced. And I wonder if you could talk about PRX. Uh, in that way, basically giving us a sense uh, of mm-hmm. uh, what the business model perhaps looks like before PRX is there, and then how PRX is is, is changing that model. And um, if sure. you could come at it that way, I think we could both maybe educate people about a little bit about the landscape, and then also they'll see your work in a, in perhaps a, a richer context. Absolutely. So you know, other than those who you know um, get too familiar with the acronyms and structures and federated world of public broadcasting and public radio, um, it's usually um, you know misconceived or or hard to even understand because, unlike for example the BBC or the CBC in Canada, um, public radio in the United States is decentralized. Um, each of the entities are a separate, um, usually nonprofit organization. And NPR is a, a you know the most well-known brand institution based in Washington D.C. distributing and producing a lot of the most important content. 
Um, but the local stations, the NPR affiliates, um, are all independently run. Many of them are licensed stations to universities. Many are community institutions. Um, you know, there's there's 500 or so that are the core members of of public radio um, all across the country. Um, and within public radio, there are additional national networks. At this point, there are um, four, if you include PRX, the, the main ones that had been in existence um, even then, uh, NPR and then Public Radio International, PRI, um, and then American Public Media, which grew out of Minnesota Public Radio. Um, so each of those would distribute and or produce programs that are well-known to listeners from NPR. It might be things like All Things Considered and Morning Edition. Um, and from PRI, it would be This American Life in the World. And from American Public Media, it would be Prairie Home Companion and Marketplace. Um, many of those um, programs were um, started at stations. So much like us discussing the connection from WBUR, and it began at a local station, incubated there, and then offered for national distribution, which is um, one of the common paths um, for growing a show and getting it distributed. Um, but there is also this universe of independent producers, often individuals or small organizations, that will produce um, you know, stories and audio and documentaries and features um, and try to offer them to public radio audiences. And prior to PRX, the challenge was that you'd need to do that either by pitching a national show, um, which has a very tight editorial uh, process and window and, of course, um, has its own producers, um, or you could work for a local station and try to, um, or pitch it to local stations, but it was difficult to reach them, and you'd have to, you know, uh, stay on the phone and try to negotiate to not even just deliver the program, um, but also to see if you could get it paid for. Um, and so we sensed this huge gap because there was also this rich archival work. Many producers who'd produced pieces in the past, um, those works were only aired once. You know, there'd be some terrific documentary that would be funded by CPB or NEA and would have a longer shelf life and it would just air once um, either nationally or on a few stations and we felt that was this huge um, sort of dark archive that was missing its value and in, in potential distribution going forward and and that was how PRX entered into it so you have this sort of federated structure local stations um, independent producers that are a, a wide and diverse group national networks that tend to um, just have a handful of shows that they focus on and distribute them nationally to local stations and there was this big gap, um, a gap that we stepped into sensing a real need and an opportunity, a problem to be solved, um, where those producers um, didn't feel like they had enough access. And we knew that technology was starting to encourage uh, there to be even more producers coming in and would need even more um, pathways to audiences. Um, and then stations themselves who you know, short of offering on a show like The Connection for National Distribution didn't have much of an opportunity to share um, on a horizontal networked way with other stations. So, you know, if you had a particularly good program and you wanted it to be something that 10 other stations wanted, um, there wasn't really a means of doing that. Um, and so that, you know, were th th those were some of the conditions that led to this, this opportunity, this need to create an exchange um, where we sensed both this archival catalog uh, way in which we could we could provide value, but also this nice notion of a marketplace, and and that really you know began our investigation when we were first planning this, where we'd want to create incentives um, around producers being able to earn revenue and for stations to pay, um, which they typically had done for national programs, but not um, on a ad hoc kind of one-off basis for buying work or licensing work from producers. So we had an uphill battle actually create the expectation that there's a, a need and a budget for 
acquisition and licensing of, of all this independent work. So, so really, you've got a the historical situation is you have some national producers and and maybe international producers of content, mm-hmm. and the stations buy that material, and then maybe they are incubating some programs on their own, and what you've really done is is dramatically open the content market mm-hmm. to to a whole range of people that maybe didn't have access before. That's right. And uh, so that's that's critical. And then and then I I notice also that actually you are have also produce some of your own programming now. Am I right about that? Because yeah, that, that's is, an, that's worth pointing out. I mean, that's yeah. a, that, that was an evolution for us. So, you know, some critical things from the beginning were that we knew we wanted to be this open platform and that was very important and has remained a core value. Um, there's no gatekeeping. Anybody could, you could today take what we're recording now, um, upload it to PRX. It's immediately available. It's listed in the new pieces on the homepage and any station could license it and use it. doesn't necessarily mean they will, but it does mean that we are not screening or sort of, you know, trying to gatekeep at that end. Um, we do a lot of work after the fact. And that was something we knew from the beginning, too, which was that we couldn't just be a database. We were going to be exercising editorial and curatorial judgment. We have to be able to feature things on our homepage. And we were also going to be needing to recommend higher quality work to stations who don't have the time. You know, these are busy program directors as the target audience. Um, to sift through thousands of things. So they're going to be looking for both human curation, um, which are our editors on staff, and some machine curation, which can be things like, you know, this piece was also licensed by this station, or here's a producer whose work was previously successful. So there's ways of sifting and sorting and, and raising the value of work, best work through that. But what's been a natural evolution for us, and I think it's similar to other open media platforms is you begin to have a, um, a, a, a intuition about what the market is looking for and where the talent is. Um, and you want to actually have a more directed role in helping ensure that um, opportunities for really good programs uh, exist and you can find ones that you can champion even more significantly. And by doing so, hopefully um, grow the usage overall of the, of the service and raise all boats. And so for us, this was a turning point um, with The Moth, which was now three or four years ago, where for the first time we decided we're going to exclusively partner with a program, a producer. In fact, they hadn't really been producing radio until we got involved. We sensed this was a really great fit. Um, and so we've had a, uh, what we think of as a signature show relationship with them, where rather than just waiting for it, that to pop up on PRX um, from a producer on the open platform, um, we lean in with them and partner to help develop a show, really position and market it and try to fundraise around it and help them build a business um, for it. Still short of us producing. We don't have any producers on staff. There's nobody here at PRX um, creating radio. Um, but it does mean that we have this, what we think of as a pyramid approach to distribution, where the base of the pyramid is the open platform. Um, the middle is the curated featured work, and that's what I was referencing for everything from our homepage to things that we pluck out and promote. Um, and then the top is a small um, part of the part of the enterprise, but an important one, which is the signature shows where in some by some nature we're exclusively partnering or helping even develop a program that we think will make a, a big difference. 
That's that's really interesting. And the Moth is is a is a terrific show. That's one that I oh, listen to regularly. And um, I must uh, it must have a longer shelf life than some because of the nature of the show. These some of these stories I would imagine are timeless and could yes. be repackaged. And you know perhaps mm-hmm. you are you selling uh, Moth episodes also over like sites like Audible and things like that. Are you thinking about that? Yes. Yeah. So that has been part of both PRX's opportunity and of course now the shift underway overall of listening um, to those platforms and devices. And so, yes, from from early days, but increasingly in the last couple of years, we've helped our producers do the digital distribution of their work, um, both onto paid services such as Audible or iTunes and to open Internet services for podcasts or for streaming. Um, And increasingly, that's becoming almost a co-equal focus um, with getting the work out to public radio stations. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Jake Shapiro, founder and CEO of PRX. I wanted to ask you about public radio remix, and, and let me put the question like this mm-hmm. and, and, and see if I'm on the right track. As you talk to social entrepreneurs in different settings, I mean, one of the things you look for is the, the disruptive innovation, the thing that's like, oh, this, this is not a one-off. This could be the thing of the future. Mm. And, uh, you know, I look at public radio remix. I'd like you to describe what it is, but um, uh, to me, it's, it seems like what it is, is, is a, uh, it's actually a radio channel, which is being distributed on the internet. I mean, is that, do I have it right? Um, you do. I mean, yeah. that's, that is a one important facet, essentially, of what PRX remix, which we're not calling it PRX remix is, um, you know, we, reached the conclusion a couple of years ago that while we're distributing thousands of these shows and programs to stations, uh, many of them are scheduled just at the margins of you know the, the, the core format of a, of a news or a music station. Um, for the listener, they are important, but they don't end up having a consistent sound or an aesthetic or an appeal. Um, and there's a lot of them that we know actually go by the wayside. There's great work that's on PRX that for a variety of reasons a station might not want or use or find valuable, but we know um, back to my two-ton shoe example, that somewhere out there, there's a South Korea for that piece. Um, you know, there is an audience for that piece, and, and it should get on to something. And so we reached the conclusion that a great way for us to showcase what we think of editorially as some of the best stories um, would be to create our own channel, our own station, vir- virtual station initially. We're not buying any local signals and having a broadcast tower. Um, and that was the birth of PRX Remix, and we had a serendipitous opportunity, which was um, uh, back maybe three or four years ago when the FCC approved the merger of XM and Sirius Satellite Radio. And those, remember, were two competing. Um, they had like these monopoly licenses to operate satellite radio. Um, and then the FCC approved the merger of these two giant companies. 
one of the conditions of the merger was that they set aside some channels for non-commercial public interest work. Um, and the first wave of that was not well publicized, and I was able to find out about it and put in a proposal, and we actually managed to get a channel on XM. Wow. Um, and so we have um, we have and operate and have since then channel 123 on XM satellite radio. And so we that we we were just starting Remix, and suddenly had this opportunity to put it on a national satellite channel, reaching you know, reaching 25 million subscribers. Um, we don't, of course, actually know how many of them are listening. XM doesn't share that data. Um, but we know that it's one of a dozen or so spoken word channels and it has a substantial audience. And it meant that we immediately had to leap into operating it um, for the future. And it has some unique facets, uh, you know, aspects to it. One is that partly because we're bootstrapping it from, you know, very few resources. We have one individual, um, Roman Mars, um, who's been our documentary DJ, our kind of chief curator, who goes through PRX, the thousands of stories we have, and selects the ones um, that meet that um, sound uh, and assembles them into a rotational playlist. And, and there's this software we use that helps us um, create a continuous 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week um, stream uh, made up of all these short pieces, and there's hundreds, now thousands of them, um, with a kind of a weighting, like a heavy, medium, and re- light rotation that you'd expect from music, um, but it assembles them into a, each unique hour. So there's never actually a, a single repeating block of program. Every hour is unique um, of the stories that's assembled, but they do repeat over time and then fade out and new ones come in. And the experience then is one of being almost on shuffle. You're listening to, to public radio stories, but there is no schedule. There's no forward promotion. And you don't say, coming up at 3 o'clock, you're going to hear this, because we actually don't even know what's coming up at 3 o'clock. And, um, you know, other than interstitial IDs that remind the listener that this is what we're doing, we're sort of picking the best of the most interesting sounds and stories in the world, um, you know, they, they actually don't know what to expect next. Um, and that's what we found to be both necessary because we didn't have the resources to do it any other way and has really become part of its appeal. And since that time, it's now grown so that um, we're offering it to local stations who are carrying it, in some cases overnight instead of the BBC, um, some cases on an uh, entire channel. So up in Canton, New York, uh, when they got a new signal, rather than repeat the NPR news, they put on Remix 24 hours a day on their on their primary radio signal, so you can just drive around and tune it in just like any other station, which is exciting for us. Wow. Um, and that's a growing number of local stations offering that format, which we think of as, you know, the famous, you know, driveway moments, you know, the stories that stop you dead in your tracks, um, which often on public radio are the ones, you know, just at the edge of the news, you know, they're not the bread and butter of public affairs, they're the ones that, you know, it's a This American Life story or a StoryCorps story or something. And, you know, we said, what if you just made that the only kind of story, all of them were that good. <laughs> um, and so that's really what has become the the sound of Remix. And for us, it serves a lot of purposes because it gives us a chance to showcase some great work that might not otherwise get um, surfaced, um, including youth-produced radio and you know some really diverse stuff that doesn't always find a home on public radio. Um, we go out and we find podcasts or you know things on the internet that nobody's yet airing and invite them in. Um, and then it also means that um, we're offering stations an alternative to their listeners and, and in ways that we think appeal to a younger um, generation, um, maybe people who are turned off 
by some of the sound of public radio or they don't find that it appeals to them. Um, this broadens its appeal while still carrying forward what we think of our as, you know, critical, you know, story-driven journalism, you know, audio and information um, that finds its way through this format to listeners who might not otherwise hear it. So this this raises a really interesting question to me. And as someone who thinks about trends in this whole area, I wanted to ask you this. Radio seems to me very, very interesting space. You know, in, in television and print media, what we're seeing is that the web has really produced some innovations that have been very disruptive to traditional business models. You know, and you see now, for example, that major newspapers and networkers are sort of been shaken from the dominant positions that they once occupied. Uh, radio, in radio, the especially in public radio, it seems like the business models have been a bit more robust. But my question is really, and I'd like to ask you for your thoughts about all that, but, but the, 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 um, this example of uh, PR remix raises what mm-hmm. I think could be the beginning of this disruptive innovation when you think about, well, if we're moving towards a world in which you know, pretty soon cars are going to have access to the data stream, you know, we already have this huge uh, pl- proliferation of cell phones that have access to the data stream, mm-hmm. you know, and now somebody can, as I know, like you have PR remixes on an app. Yes. You know, what happens when the radio station becomes an app? Mm-hmm. Is that potentially something that could shake the foundations of the way this thing is put together? Absolutely. And it's already underway. And, and you know, those have been tensions and, and shifts that um, for a number of years have been on the horizon. Uh, public Radio is true, actually, has, has been much stronger in the face of this kind of radical shift in media consumption and access and distribution than other um, media businesses, in part because of its federated, decentralized structure and its diversified business model, where it's not singly dependent on advertising or classifieds like newspapers were, where Craigslist just kind of ate their lunch on it. Um, yeah, exactly. And you know, it also is uh, you know, it's hard to paint it with a single brush either, because you've got you know major market stations in cities like Boston and New York or Chicago that are significant cultural institutions with. You know, trustees and donors and membership bases and you know, listeners in the hundreds of thousands and um, they're they're very able to withstand and and evolve and are already realizing that they need to be uniquely providing something that isn't just a pass through of other people's content distribution that you know just being a place to tune in to all things considered when you can hear it on hundreds of internet streams or devices will no longer be a sufficient distinction um, for them to survive. And so they've really already begun um, figuring out how to be a local media institution that has a variety of relationships that that matter to their listeners. Whereas there are other stations that are in more risk because they don't have the wherewithal either to create content or to offer so, such kinds of local connections. And, um, you know, it's a huge range from small stations and small communities up to the major cities. So it's hard to, you know, have it painted with a single brush, but they, there is this feeling that um, we're at a, a, a an inflection point where those trends of direct distribution and disaggregation and third parties who are pulling together some of the most valuable parts of public radio and offering it, like Apple over iTunes, you can get most of what many listeners turn to on, on the iPhone or iTunes podcasts even before apps were available, um, that that will start to pull at the pretty intricately threaded together model of public radio. Um, and it's not as simple as saying like an NPR could just decide to start offering content directly to listeners because 
they're actually you know, relying very heavily still on the broadcast audience and the fees that are paid by stations to them. And um, so you start pulling on that thread and things come unraveled in, in sort of unpredictable ways. And for PRX, because we actually have been a disruptive innovator, um, but sharing the values and ultimate purpose of public radio, um, it's been very interesting because we feel like we have a good role to play in pushing the envelope and trying to build things that are very much attuned to how people really do want to use media um, even at risk of disrupting or cannibalizing parts of the, you know, the parent, the mothership enterprise, um, but done in a way where we're still really ultimately supportive of the mission, um, and hopefully by b- then building things that um, will be the future um, models or platforms or institutions that will continue public radio's critical role and grow it, um, even as some of the old um, system starts to fray. Um, and that's the balancing act we've always had because, you know, there's a sense that in the larger scheme of things, we're all on the same side. I mean, public radio, while we have competition within the field, a healthy competition, you know, really wants to make sure that really good, high quality, important story driven audio journalism, you know, makes it to people. Um, and so, you know, for PRX, we've jumped into apps um, early on. We built the first public radio player aggregation app. Um, which has had over 6 million downloads and gets a lot of use. And then we built apps for This American Life and Radiolab. And those are examples where, you know, Ira Glass very much has a direct relationship with a hugely loyal fan base um, where he built it over time through the broadcast air of local stations. But at this moment, um, you know, really has a direct um, distribution opportunity and ways of really sustaining a show outside of that. Uh, model and and that's something that everybody's trying to grapple with and for us we see that as something to lean into and in fact try to start more programs that have that as their starting point. So this is a natural segue I think to talk just a little bit about Matter Ventures, uh, which I understand is l- like an accelerator for these kind of ventures mm-hmm. that has been created by PRX. And so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. But my particular question is. Could you offer any uh, any ideas about some of the more exciting things that you see coming out of that work that are really perhaps game changers uh, to the industry um, and uh, to public media in general? Absolutely. So we've thought of PRX's primary roles as uh, three, which is content, um, you know, the, the distrib- distribution and development of shows like The Moth, uh, distribution as, as a whole, the platforms that we help distribute on, and then this third area, which has been leadership and innovation. So this has got us into policy work or experiments. Um, there is not a lot of R&D uh, capacity in the system of public broadcasting. So PRX, since we decided early on to be a technology shop, um, have taken it on because we find it interesting um, and have gotten support for it to do these kinds of digitally focused experiments and labs. And they've led to things like, you know, the apps work that we've done and uh, programs like the Public Radio Talent Quest, which was a contest to find new hosts. Um, and in that vein, um, the, 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 the emerged this accelerator uh, matter. Um, where two years ago, almost two years ago, in discussions with the Knight Foundation, we were saying, where would we be able to make an intervention in advancing you know, more radical innovation with, uh, within public media or for the same goals of public media? Um, and at the time, having been a close observer of uh, entrepreneurship in the Silicon Valley mode um, and fascinated with how accelerators like Techstars and Y Combinator um, were achieving a new, ma- a new way of helping startups gain their footing, I propose that we initially just use the word accelerator almost as a metaphor, and ultimately, in investigating it, we decided to set one up, um, actually build a separate institution, a separate entity as a for-profit 
um, accelerator. Uh, we're basing it out in San Francisco where we found an extraordinary person to lead it, someone who originally came from Frontline as a documentary filmmaker, but ultimately was running an accelerator program for Eric Schmidt at Google and had this kind of balance of, of Silicon Valley and public media values that was perfect. Um, so launched it out there with the goal of trying to help mission-driven entrepreneurs build scalable media ventures that inform and connect and empower society. So very much shared mission with, but very different basis and mode outside of the institutional reach of of any media organization, um, but trying to find really the next generation leaders who see their um, way, means of achieving this by building technology startups that, that really get after that. And we just concluded our first round, essentially having six startups get their um, beginnings through this four-month program um, where we um, bring them all together in a shared space in San Francisco and teach them uh, design thinking and entrepreneurship and bring in mentors and speakers and coach them on their product and push them all towards a demo day in front of investors. Um, we just brought them to New York for a media showcase this week that I just got back from. And among the six are all you know, you know, know, different uh, approaches to disruptive media ideas. Uh, one of them um, is called Spoken Layer, which works with text publishers to transform their work into audio um, for digital distribution, with the insight being that we have millions of devices that are enabled with headphones and then huge wealth of written content that's not available in that format and, uh, and an independent um, voice talent network that they can farm out that reading to in, in an efficient way and then create audio versions of these texts, uh, articles, and put them out on the web and mobile. Um, another one called Inkfold, um, which realizes that much of our link sharing when we share news with each other is lost through email and the impulse to share something because I thought of you when I read it um, hasn't been organized. And so he's created a new newsreader in mobile for that. Um, another one called Mixation, which allows any organization to create a TV-like continuous streaming video channel on their website. Um, and uh, another one called Ziga, which is a brand new interactive visual, audiovisual format. Um, and the last one is Channel Meter, which does video analytics for insights into the impact of video online. So each of these is you know, co-founding teams of two to four people um, that were selected because we believe those people share the mission and ha are building something that is viable and desirable and uses today's technology for today's audiences um, in a way that could be helpful to public media. So it could be that those tools are used by traditional public media enterprises and stations are interested in them, um, but also goes beyond that. It's not defined just by the field. Um, and we're announcing or we're deciding um, the next round soon. We actually have application deadline this Sunday night for applicants applying to become round two entrepreneurs in matter. Wow, amazing uh, stories of just really interesting work going on, and I and I know we want our listeners to know that they can go to the uh, website for that uh, accelerator. Yes, um, it's matter.vc. Uh, matter.vc, which is a funny um, domain, but that's a, that's one that implies our venture background. So I have a question that I ask all of my uh, high tech uh, friends, and I want to just put this to you because I just would. Uh, regret missing the opportunity to ask you this. So uh, my grandfather told my father what it was like to live without radio and movies. And, uh, you know, my father told me what it was like to live without a television. And I tell my son uh, what it was like to live without computers and the internet and smartphones. So the question is, what will my son tell his mm -hmm. son 
what it was like to live without. And I, I think you, you have children too, right? Yes, we do. So, Small so ones, yep. this is a question that I often ask myself, you know, what, what is the, what is the big innovation that I'm not going to see pretty much in my lifetime? I wonder if living in this space, you, you dream about that and, and what, what you think about. It's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think we all see with some fascination and trepidation the advent of um, Google Glass and self-driving cars and the things that they're cooking up in the in the future over there. Um, and I do think that that's likely to be the case for much of the sort of social and big data and connected world that we're in, with everything having a sensor and everything being smart about it and having this implicit social um, intelligence. Um, will be hardwired into us such that we actually navigate the world um, with all of that as a layer. And uh, God, I really hope we can turn it all off um, when we need to. Right, um, the danger. Because, yeah, the danger. Even, even now, I feel like I'm already um, almost creating that for myself um, to much distraction. But I do think um, in many ways that will be the thing that we will even have trouble imagining life without um, where – you know, every surface is smart. Um, everything we touch has that kind of implicit um, connectivity and, and networked intelligence in it. Um, and hopefully we are still shaping and guiding it towards the ends that, that I believe in around the public good, um, because I think that's a, a, a battle we, we are not necessarily winning um, and that we have to step forward significantly to infuse those things with intent and with values uh, because they're not, you know, technology alone will not necessarily make that the case. Um, we're, we're coming to the end of our of our time together, and I'd I'd like to ask you um, this question. Many of our listeners, I believe, are going to be people who are either studying uh, social entrepreneurship or perhaps experimenting with their own social impact ventures. And as you look back on your journey, you know, building PRX and now really working with a, gen a new generation of uh, social entrepreneurs, I guess the question is, what words of wisdom uh, do you have for people starting out? And if you could even reflect on some of the hard and difficult places, you know, we tend to celebrate all the high points, but mm. as we know, there's often, there's often low points in, in this work where you think, oh my God, I'm never going to get there. And sure. uh, what takes you through that? What words of advice can you offer? Oh man, there's many, many, many lessons and definitely some missed moments I've had that I've learned from. Um, certainly that, that is in itself one of them that to embrace um, the, the failure or willingness to try and, and not be at risk averse because that is a huge learning opportunity and hopefully find uh, mentors who see that. So I think I've been shaped enormously by um, mentors and, and the co-founders of PRX and people who brought me into this with insights um, and have been uh, available as coaches and advisors along the way. Um, and to be completely open with them and seek their help, I think, is really critical. And then be a magnet for talent and, and um, be able to, you know, surround yourself with a diverse mix of people who um, often know more than you do uh, about anything and be willing to let go of enough control if you're a founder or a CEO or somebody with a project to, to actually have other people really begin to feel a sense of pride and ownership in it and take it places where you couldn't even have imagined um, and that's a startup journey that that is tough because in the beginning you have to do absolutely everything and you want to make sure that it's fantastic at every level um, and feel like you almost have to do it all. Um, and I think that aspect of creating teams um, where where those individuals find their own passion and success through the larger mission and work um, has been a, a, a great success at PRX. 
um, which I'm very proud of for, for the group that we've had here, including technology talent, which is extremely hard to do in a nonprofit setting. Um, and we've done that well. Um, so those would be a couple of thoughts off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's more. Yeah, that's true. I would have to agree that uh, at the end of the day, the team is so critical to the success and the ability of an organization to grow. Um, people who are interested in supporting your work and uh, contributing, volunteering, learning more, the best place for them to find you would be prx.org. That's right. Are there any other important ways that people should be reaching you? Um, that's really the best. Uh, certainly follow the social media streams of PRX, but but my email is fine. Jake at PRX.org um, is great. And uh, following at PRX on Twitter and at MatterVC um, for what's happening with Matter Ventures. You know, for Matter, um, we're always looking for, you know, really talented people who might be part of this as an applicant or an entrepreneur, but also the ecosystem of partners, um, people who are interested in uh, media um, and you know our cause, which we describe as changing media for good. Um, so we're we're always on the lookout for that. And if you're a producer of stories, um, whether for broadcast or for internet, you know PRX is a great place to both discover um, some remarkable work, um, and then ultimately, if you'd like to help tell and distribute them, uh, we we have that open door, and always love hearing new things, which we listen to constantly. Great. Well, I became a premium member yesterday, so you got one <laughs> more. You got one more. <laughs> Thanks um, for joining. Yeah, Jake, thank you so much for your leadership and your your pioneering work in this in this area. It's it's essential, and it's been a it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. David, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.